Luke Dittrich arrived in St. Louis in May 2011 to try and track down Chuck Berry. He was writing a story about the music legend for Esquire magazine. The day he got to Missouri, though, a devastating tornado hit the town of Joplin. The storm killed 158 people. It injured more than 1,000 and caused more than $2.8 billion in damage. Now, Joplin is about 300 miles west of St. Louis, and so the devastation didn't really reach where Dittrich was, but the storm dominated the news. Here's Dittrich. I was still being kind of bombarded by this imagery from the tornado, which was harrowing and devastating and, and just sort of awful. Even after he saw some of the images of the storm, Dittrich really wasn't interested in writing about it. He didn't see a potential story there. That changed when he talked on the phone to his mom one night while he was in St. Louis. She was talking about the tornado, and uh, she mentioned having heard something on NPR about some folks who had been stuck in a cooler, and there had been some sort of YouTube video, and they had talked to the kid who had shot the YouTube video. So I, I went to YouTube, uh, watched this you know, five-minute, 40-second-long iPhone video, um, that a guy named Isaac Duncan had shot. And it was some of the most kind of, I don't know, just sort of powerful media that I'd ever experienced. It's this um, intensely emotional and harrowing kind of visceral document of what it, what I imagine it might be like to be in a situation like that. There's not much to see in the video. Come on. right here. It's dark. It starts off in the convenience store where people are looking out on the storm and trying to figure out what to do. People are talking, trying to stay calm. You can hear thunder in the background and then a loud sound like the building is falling apart. There are screams. That's when everyone moves into the beer pool. The tornado hits. There's more screaming and crying and shouts to Jesus. You can hear the crunching and ripping of metal as the building was being torn apart. You can hear the glass beer bottles breaking. But then, when the storm is at its strongest, you hear strangers telling each other spontaneously that they love each other. I saw that and I immediately thought that that would be a story to find out who these people were and to tell how they had come together and basically tell the story of this of this iPhone video, but tell it in, in, in kind of a full uh, contextualized way. Once he decided to do the story, Dietrich went to Joplin. He spent almost a month there. He spent his first week at a church shelter and helped do cleanup work. Then he started reporting and tracking down the people who were in the beer cooler. He crawled through the rubble of the convenience store. He looked in abandoned cars. He asked every single person he saw if they could connect him to those who were in the cooler. It all eventually came together. The story, Heavenly Father, I love you, I love everyone, 
ran in the October 2011 issue of Esquire. It won the National Magazine Award for feature writing in 2012. I like how Dittrich found his way into the story. It's the perfect example of the many places reporters can find narrative ideas. He found this story by talking with his mother. Other reporters have found great stories by reading news briefs in newspapers, or by hanging out in bars, or by just being out on a walk, or by talking to strangers. Stories are everywhere. We just have to be looking. For this episode, I've dug into the Gangry the Podcast archives. I've done nearly 80 episodes now, and found the times great narrative reporters have talked about how they found the ideas that turned into great pieces of narrative journalism. Stick around, and you'll hear Eli Saslow of the Washington Post. You'll hear Pamela Koloff of the New York Times and ProPublica. And you'll hear Michael Cruz of Politico. They've all been on the podcast multiple times, so you'll hear them describing how they find the stories they report and write. Stories that are so good, we end up talking about them over and over again. Stay tuned. This is Gangry the Podcast. Did you know that you can listen to every single episode of Gangry the Podcast on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you can listen to interviews with amazing writers and reporters like Pamela Koloff, David Gran, Janet Reitman, Tom Junot, Eli Saslow, Ben Montgomery, Landa Gregory, and so many more. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Eli Saslow has made a career at the Washington Post out of digging into big national issues and showing readers exactly how normal, ordinary people are impacted by those issues. He wrote about a swimming pool salesman during the height of the Great Recession. He spent more than a week with the Barden family, whose six-year-old son had been killed at Sandy Hook. He's written about opioids and about the border between Texas and Mexico. In 2013, he set his sights on food stamps. He wanted to write about the federal program from a lot of different angles. He wrote about a supermarket in Rhode Island that depended on food stamps to stay in business. He wrote about a group of people that fed children in Appalachia during the summer. And he wrote about a congressman from Florida who thought that food stamps should be reduced or eliminated. What resulted was a complex series of stories that really showed what was going on in America today when it comes to hunger and finances and so much else. The series won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting in 2014. For Saslow, it all started in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Well, wait, let me back up. It actually started in the newsroom of the Washington Post. Here's Eli Saslow. Really, it started, I, I, I'd been paying attention to this 
this continuing rise in, in the food stamp program for a while. Um, and it, it became sort of more and more surprising to me as the economy was getting better, that, that this one in this one place, things were still actually really bad and, and getting worse, um, historically bad. Saslow didn't approach this idea thinking it would be a series, though. Sometimes maybe people can do that and it works. Uh, but really, for me, it just started out with I had I had one one or two ideas um, that felt to me a little bit new about the food stamp program. The first idea? To understand how food stamps had become so big that they had become an economy unto themselves. Before Saslow went anywhere, he wanted to do some research. It's an underrated part of reporting for narrative journalism, he says. For Saslow, he had a couple of things he wanted to know before he hit the road. So what I did in that instance is I probably spent a day or two just really breaking down the data. Um, and, and one of the things that eliminated a lot of states and places was that only about seven or eight states still just distribute food stamps on the first of the month. Others have started to spread it out. Uh, so I knew I wanted to go to a place that was still on the first of the month. Then I, I looked at those states and and different different places where it was really high. And then within those states, places that, where it was really high. Sazzle ended up in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Over a six-year period, food stamp usage in that state had risen from 73,000 people to 180,000. In Woonsocket alone, nearly 14,000 people, about a third of the town's population, were on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, as it's known. For that first story in the Washington Post, Sazlow spent time at a grocery store. That store, on the last day of the month, would be lucky to sell $500 worth of product. Then, the very next day, after SNAP assistance was loaded, his store would be swamped and sell more than $7,000 worth of food. Sazlow also spent time with a family, a husband and a wife with two kids, who were on the food stamp assistance program. He met the woman standing in line for lunch at a soup kitchen. So how does Saslow convince people who are down on their luck to open up about their lives? Because the truth is, um, I think you don't want to be doing too much convincing. Uh, because if, if you're if you're really having to work super hard to sell somebody on letting you write about them, um, with with these kind of stories, I'm I'm I might be with people for a week at a time. And, and if it starts out from a place of, of sort of, uh, you know, um, hesitancy or, or uncertainty, then the truth is like, there's a pretty good chance that people become more uncertain and that it falls apart as you go. So you want to make sure that you're not sort of, uh, coercing or, or, or working too hard to convince people to be written about. Um, it's not good for them and, and it's not good for the story. What Saslow has found is that if it's obvious that you, the reporter, care about the people you are trying to interview, well, then they're far more likely to open up and let you in. The truth is, I think that when you can, uh, when you can convince somebody that you really care um, and that, that what they're dealing with is, is really important um, and that it matters, it, it matters not just to them, but, but it matters to, to a bigger thing that's happening in the country, um, then uh, that's, that's actually really empowering for people. If as the writer you don't, you don't care at all or, or you're sort of uh, 
indifferent toward toward the issues of the people that you're writing about, and then nobody who's reading is is going to care either. I mean, you you uh, I'm not talking about caring in an advocacy type way, but just in a human way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you better feel some of the things you're writing about if you want readers to feel them as well. Now, it's not always easy for Saslow, even though he makes it look easy. He actually told me he can get intimidated by big story ideas. One of the lessons he learned while working on this series, though, is the fact that one can write interesting, compelling narratives about anything. For me, was that really like you can write interesting, compelling narratives about anything, uh, even if even if topics seem complex and if they seem sort of um, difficult to to uh, to navigate. If you can break them into manageable ideas um, where you're sort of probing some new ground and if you can find compelling characters, uh, good, good narrative stories can still be done. That was Eli Saslow of The Washington Post. He won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory reporting in 2014 for this series. Cecil has been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize three other times. He was originally a guest on Gangry, the podcast, on episode 26. He's also been featured on a mini-episode where we talked about Newtown, Connecticut. That's where I live now, by the way. And Eli was part of episode 72, where he talked more about being a reporter who spent time with a Sandy Hook family after the killings. I also talked to Sandy Hook parents for that show as well, including Mark Barden, who Saslow featured in his story, Into the Lonely Quiet. We're going to take a short break. I'll be back with Pamela Koloff and Michael Cruz. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangri the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism Program at Fairfield University. The Bachelor of Arts degree in Digital Journalism is a rigorous 12-course program designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to take part in today's quickly changing media world. The podcast is also brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University. The college grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. To learn more about the Digital Journalism Program and the College of Arts and Sciences, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Pamela Koloff was on maternity leave with her second child in the fall of 2011 when huge news broke in Central Texas. Good afternoon. Thanks for being here. DNA could set a man free 25 years after he went to prison for killing his wife. His attorneys say new DNA results prove Michael Morton did not kill his wife back in 1986. His attorneys want him released immediately. This case goes back a quarter century. A man who had been convicted of murder in August 1987 and who had spent 24 years in prison, had just been exonerated after DNA testing cleared him. 
The news was on the front page of newspapers several days in a row and dominated television news. Michael Morton in the Texas prison for 25 years for a murder he did not commit. Walks out of the courtroom a free man this afternoon. A judge ordering Morton's release just about two hours ago. Koloff had been writing stories about wrongful convictions for Texas Monthly. And in Texas, there were a lot of them. To her, though, the Michael Morton story was bigger. Here's Pamela Koloff. And this case to me was just, even though it was, it was garnering a lot of media attention, um, to me there was so much more narratively that needed to be told. For weeks, Koloff sent emails to her editor. They said, Please don't give this story away while I'm gone. I'll be back really soon. Koloff got to do the story. She spent almost a year reporting and writing a piece that ultimately ran in two parts. The Innocent Man ran in Texas Monthly in November and December of 2012. It was a huge story, nearly 30,000 words. It ultimately won a National Magazine Award for feature writing in 2013. Here's Koloff again. I did not, I probably would not have undertaken it if I had realized what it was going to metastasize into. Koloff said she originally talked with her editor about doing something small, like a profile of the district attorney involved in this, or maybe a profile of, of Morton. That all changed for Koloff, though, when she read the trial transcript. And as soon as I read the trial transcript, I said, no, this is, this is big. Big, as in meaning 15,000 words big. And she kept reporting and reading and learning more and more about the case. The effort that folks went through to get Morton exonerated was so involved and complicated that Koloff knew more than 15,000 words were needed. And, you know, I think what most people read in the papers is, okay, there's this DNA test and it's not him, and so he gets out. But in fact, it was just this incredibly long, complicated, but fascinating legal story. Koloff said her managing editor would laugh at her whenever she walked into the Texas Monthly office. Because I would walk into her office in a panic and I would say, you know, okay, I think now it's 18,000 words. And then two weeks later, okay, I think it's 20. And then I remember at some point saying, I, I really don't know how long it is. And when we went to press on the first part, um, I was still writing the, the second part. Ultimately, the story was a perfect storm for Koloff. She wanted to write about wrongful convictions in Texas but she also wanted to write stories that showed readers a perfectly normal human, someone they could connect with, who had been wrongfully convicted. That happened with Michael Morton. It personalized uh, the issue of wrongful convictions. I mean, I think anybody can relate to, you're just an ordinary person, you're married, you're doing your job, and then, you know, all of a sudden, everyone, I mean, it by the time Michael went to jail, even his friends were convinced that he had done this. So hopefully that sort of reaches a broader audience than some of these cases usually do. That was Pamela Koloff again, talking about her National Magazine award-winning story, The Innocent Man. It ran in two parts in Texas Monthly in 2012. Koloff has been on two episodes of Gangry the Podcast. She was on episode three, where we talked about The Innocent Man, and where the clips from this show came. She was also on episode 63. We talked about her New York Times and ProPublica series, Blood Will Tell, on that show. 
We're going to end this show with Michael Cruz. He's a senior staff writer at Politico and Politico Magazine. Cruz is one of the originators of the website Gangry.com, which this podcast got its name from. The first time I talked with Cruz on this show was in January of 2014, when we talked about his Tampa Bay Times series, The Last Voyage of the Bounty. He was on the show again in March 2016, when he was one of five reporters who talked about Michael Brick. Brick was a wonderful narrative reporter who had just died of colon cancer. We talked about Brick's work, which had been compiled into an excellent book titled Everyone Leaves Behind a Name. That book was published by the Sager Group. The last time Cruz was on Gangry the Podcast was in November 2017. We talked about his work at Politico and how it was different from what he had done when he was at the Tampa Bay Times. So I've, I've talked with Cruz about a lot of his work on this podcast and at other times, but one thing I've never gotten on the show is his thoughts on his story about Catherine Norris. Norris was the woman who had been missing for 16 months in Florida, but nobody had ever reported her missing. The bank foreclosed on her townhouse and, and then sold it. The new owner walked in and started cleaning up. That's when he found a body in the car in the garage. It was, of course, the body of Catherine Norris. The story is one I teach almost every semester in my journalism courses here at Fairfield University. It's a wonderful piece of enterprise work that that tries to answer the question, how could a woman go missing inside her own home and nobody notice? Fortunately, Cruz talked about how the story came about when he did a TEDx talk in Tampa back in 2012. I'm just going to play the spot where Cruz talked about the Catherine Norris story, but you can go to our website, that's www.gangrythepodcast.com, and find a YouTube link to his entire talk which was focused on the future of stories. Here's Michael Cruz. Six. <laughs> that, was, that was really a reach. Six. <laughs> so articles and stories. Articles aren't stories, but articles are parts of stories, or can be. Often they're beginnings, or they're endings. And I want to tell you about an ending. In November of 2010, I read a short article, a brief, tiny little brief, about a woman over in Cape Canaveral. She had died. She had died in her car, in her garage, in her townhouse, and had not been found for 16 months. She hadn't been found until her home was sold in a foreclosure auction. And the man who bought the home took the keys, opened the door, walked into the house, walked around downstairs, walked around upstairs, walked back downstairs into the garage, over to the car, and stopped and stared at the mummified remains of a human being, whose name was Catherine Norris. So my job to turn that article into a story is to report from that end back to the beginning, to her birth, if I can get there. That's my job for the Tampa Bay Times, to turn articles into stories. So, I start with public records, as I almost always do. 
Catherine Norris had left behind for a recluse an almost shocking amount of public paper trail. She'd sued people, people had sued her. She'd been married twice, divorced twice. She had interacted with people. I sometimes think of public records as the bottom rungs of rope ladders. There's something to grab onto, and then I can start climbing my way up. There was plenty of rope ladder rungs, plenty to justify a trip over to Cape Canaveral. So I gave myself three days. I go over there, and I get lucky. I pull up to the house, and I see a dumpster in the yard. And in the house, the man who bought the house was there cleaning it out. Catherine Norris was a hoarder. She had left lots of stuff in the house. So he's trying to clean this out. And I introduce myself and I tell him what I'm trying to do. And he says, sure, come on in. And we talk. And then I said, uh, you get back to it and I'll, uh, I'll just poke around in here. Is it okay if I take some stuff? He said, sure. Her long lost relatives had come by and already picked up what they wanted. It was just trash to him. It's potential information to me. Grabbed a laundry basket. I started throwing all sorts of things in there, envelopes address books, return addresses, phone bills, little notes pinned to bulletin boards, everything I could get my hands on. And he, he notices what I'm looking for, and he says, you know what? A lot of that stuff is out in the dumpster already. I said, really? And I was dressed pretty much the way I'm dressed right now. This is sort of my uniform, probably not the vest, shirt and tie. So I jump into the dumpster. I start doing, I start doing the same thing in the dumpster. I get back to the hotel room that night and start going through what I have in this laundry basket and from that dumpster and from our home. And in the hotel room, I lay out all these things as best I can in chronological order, from the desk to the area around the TV to the bedspread. And I can stand back and for the first time, I can see Catherine Norris. There she is. That's her story, starting to be there. That was part of Michael Cruz's TEDx Tampa talk back in November 2012. Cruz is now a senior staff writer at Politico and Politico magazine. He's one of the reporters to read when it comes to covering those running for president. If you want to watch the entire 20-minute talk, and I recommend that you do, you can find a link on our website. That's at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Well, that's it for this episode of Gangry the Podcast. It was quite different from anything I've done before, so I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know what you think. You can do so by emailing gangrythepodcast at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on Twitter. We are at Gangry Podcast. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by Fairfield University's digital journalism program and the College of Arts and Sciences. Our music comes from Audionautics. 
This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.